Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, July 19th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we've got some big banks' earnings to get to. Unlike the Grateful Dead, it appears the music has stopped for Bill Spackman's Universal Music deal. And we've got a couple of stocks to watch for the coming week. Joining me, as always, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Good. How are you doing today? Hey, man, I've got no complaints. And you know what they say? Even if I was complaining, ain't nobody out there wants to listen anyway. So let's just, uh, we're, we're going to look at a glass half full and say everything's doing just fine. <laughs> Uh, Matt, last week we closed the show out with a, uh, a preview, so to speak, looking at the beginning of earnings season uh, in the banks uh, that, that we're getting ready to report. This week, we are going to talk a little bit about the banks that have reported so far. Uh, primarily, you know, we focus on the big banks this, this week uh, on, on this show, and, and really all of the biggest banks have reported. Uh, so we wanted to go through really the four that really stood out to you uh, the most. And so I wanted to kick the conversation off today. Uh, with J.P. Morgan. Uh, We know going into this earnings season, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of the bank, definitely had some concerns that inflation might not necessarily be transitory as some uh, others may be be thinking. Uh, But what stood out to you this quarter for J.P. Morgan? Um, Well, it was weird because the the stock actually kind of dropped a little bit right after the report. Uh, even though the bank beat expectations on both revenue and earnings, um, I, we mentioned earlier uh, several times that a lot of, that the banks put a lot of money aside for for loan losses during the pandemic, and that we might see some reserve releases. That was absolutely the case here. Uh, J.P. Morgan released 5.2 billion dollars. Um, kind of gives you an idea of how much it thinks the economy's improved. Um, that accounted for over a dollar a share in earnings all by itself. Wow. Um, so it beat earnings expectations. It beat revenue expectations. Um, trading revenue was actually pretty impressive. Remember, um, in our earnings preview, I was concerned that we would see trading revenue really just fall off a cliff. Uh, if you remember, the first quarter was really volatile in the stock market, which generally makes for good trading revenue. Uh, volatility in, in not only stocks, but in interest rates as well means more people are trading bonds, more people are trading stocks more frequently. Um, think institutional investors, things like that. Which So trading revenue in the first quarter blew everyone's expectations out of the water. In the second quarter, it was kind of a boring market in a lot of ways, especially compared to the first quarter. <laughs> yeah. um, so JP Morgan's trading revenue actually beat expectations on the fixed income side and the equity side. Uh, fixed income was $800 million ahead of expectations. Equities was a billion over expectations. So as, we'll get, as we go through, you'll see some of its peers did not post numbers like that. Um, so that was very promising. Um, but trading revenue is one of those things where it's, it's very tough to predict. And it jumps around from quarter to quarter a lot. 
Like it, it seems, it seems almost almost like it's a, you look at something like a Disney or you know media company where that movie revenue right is that can be so lumpy because it's so it's hit driven. You can never really predict how a movie is going to be received, and it's it's not like a steady stream of just hit movies always coming out. It's unpredictable. Right, and hit driven is really a good way to describe it, <laughs> um, because you know one really volatile week in the stock market can really jump, you know, boost your equities trading revenue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, which is what makes it so tough to predict, because you have to think back, like, okay, it was really volatile in March, it wasn't too volatile in February, then we had that, you know, one day, you know, flash crash where everyone was trading and things like that. It can be really tough to predict. So, I don't put too much stock into trading revenue. Which is a lot of investors don't, which is why you you know th- those were blowout numbers, but the stock still dropped. Um, lo- interest margins really didn't creep up as much as we would hope. Uh, still really really lower than last year. Uh, Jamie Dimon called loan demand challenging, um, even though the loan portfolio increased by one percent over the first quarter. That's still pretty. I mean, that it's still a big drop over from a year ago. Um, Deposit base is up 23% year over year. People have money. They don't need to borrow it. It's essentially kind of the 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 uh, the, the big take on it. Uh, but a very profitable quarter return on equity was 18%, which is really good for a bank. Anything in the double digits is usually considered good. Um, so, yeah, well-run bank, doing well, uh, beat trading, but we'll see how that how much that lasts. Yeah, and I mean, to your point there on loan demand, it seems like that's, it seems like that's a common thread through this earnings season so far, at least with the big banks. And we saw that, uh, you know, called out also in, in, in Bank of America. I think Wells Fargo, he's, he, he talked about tepid demand there. Uh, but, and I think we had referred to this statistic last week or perhaps the week before, but it was just amazing to think about the numbers. Pre-pandemic, you were looking at a savings level. Consumers had saved around $800 billion collectively. Throughout the pandemic and all of the stimulus and everything that's gone on, those save those savings balances jumped up to three trillion dollars. It basically played out to four years worth of saving all pulled forward into one year. So it's easy to understand why loan demand would be tepid, because like you said, customers are, with all of the challenges, consumers generally are kind of flush with some cash. Yeah, I mean, I could see. I can see that changing over the next few quarters. Oh yeah, it feels like it has to, right? That that that's not an endless pot of money. Well, as as we go through Bank of America's numbers, you'll see that consumers are spending a whole lot, so those deposit balances are going to you know start whittling their way down. Yeah, and and then yeah. what happens? Then people need to borrow money or stop spending, <laughs> yeah. but. But let's be honest, Americans generally choose the borrow money route rather than not spending. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the the puts and takes of a credit-driven economy. Well, well, let's talk about those Bank of America numbers because that's another one where, you know, I, I was looking through this call and I mean it was just it was interesting to see me revenue down modestly three and a half percent from a year ago, but it, it sounded like investment banking fees played a role there. Um, but what what stood out to you there with Bank of America's quarter? Yeah, so Bank of America, they missed revenue expectations, which is really rare for a bank. Banks generally beat expectations. I really don't know why they even bother putting out expectations because they just beat them every quarter. Um, but Bank of America had a rare miss. They missed revenue by about $200 million. But like you said, a lot of this was on the investment banking side, specifically the trading revenue. Remember, I just said that JP Morgan kind of blew out expectations out of the water for trading revenue. 
between the two uh, fixed income and equities, they beat by $1.8 billion. Bank of America did not. Uh, Bank of America missed trading revenue estimates on the fixed income side by $800 million. So $800 million lower than expectations. Um, so if they missed their revenue expectation by $200 million, but missed trading revenue expectations by $800 million, that means the rest of their business actually beat expectations. So um, th- another kind of concerning thing, net interest margin was, I mentioned this, this is a problem across the board, uh, but was even lower than expected. Net interest margin was 1.61%. That's 26 basis points lower than it was a year ago. Um, and a, f- a little bit lower than analysts were looking for. Um, like JP Morgan, they released some reserves. They released $1.6 billion in reserves. Their loan book grew in the second quarter slightly, but for the first time since the pandemic started. Like I said, consumers are going to start spending money. And one of the most interesting things, and then I'll, I'll stop talking about Bank of America because I talk about them enough on our show, Um they actually put out a lot of consumer spending data in their earnings presentation. Uh, remember Brian Moynihan a couple of weeks ago said uh, consumers were spending about 20% more than they were before the pandemic? Well, now we have the hard numbers. It's actually 22% more than the first half of 2019. And he broke it down into categories. Consumers are spending more than pre-pandemic, not just 2020. You know, everyone knows we're spending money on get more money on gas and groceries and stuff like that now than we were in 2020. I don't think I bought gas during the second quarter of 2020. <laughs> um, <laughs> you probably didn't either. I tell you, I'm still not buying a whole heck of a lot of it, though. It's a lot more now than it was a year ago. That's for sure. Right. But So the average consumer, the average Bank of America customer is spending 34% more on retail than they were before the pandemic, 20% more on services, 19, or I'm sorry, 16% more on food, and 8% more on gas than they were in 2019. They're spending 13% less on travel, so that really hasn't come back yet. But even with that, across the board, that's 22% higher consumer spending than before the pandemic. So yeah, deposit deposits are up, loans are down, but how long is that going to last when people are spending like like this? Yeah. Yep, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, they, they deposits were up 14%. I mean, that's... That's considerable, but uh, yeah, to your point. I mean, again, more, more, uh, more credit reserves released. Um, I mean, in, in a, much like the the loan demand. I mean, that's another common thread we're seeing, and I mean, I think it's a good indicator these banks are feeling better and better about uh, being back to where we were uh, before before 2020. And I mean, you know, ultimately, that's an encouraging sign there. But uh, but yeah, yet yet another. Another common thread to pay attention to with these banks. Uh, let's let's pivot to Wells Fargo, another bank that you follow closely. I'll remind listeners that this is the bank that you tapped at the beginning of the year for your financials stock of the year, and so far that's working out very well for you. As I uh, as I watch this thing continue to creep upward, it's not without its challenges. I mean, they <laughs> still haven't had that asset ca- uh, cap lifted yet, Matt. I think that's coming sooner rather than later. But it seemed like it was a pretty good quarter all the way around, um, and followed some of those common threads we've been talking about. Yeah, and with that asset cap, you mentioned that other banks had their um, deposits up, you know, ten even over twenty percent year over year. Wells Fargo didn't; their deposit base is only up four percent, and a lot of that is because they're not allowed to grow. Um, so if they take in, you know, they, if they take in more assets than they're allowed to, they have to get rid of it somewhere else. Um, but they are the top performing bank stock year to date. 
if only someone had you know suggested them. You hear that, folks? Uh, <laughs> that's that's Matt. Tad's, he's well, patting himself on the back there. <laughs> no, but just the stats. They're up forty three percent. The stock's up forty three percent year to date. Bank of America is up 32%, JP Morgan 23%, the S&P is up 16%. So banks as a whole are beating the market. Um, so the financial show is looking pretty good. Normally it's the tech show that's like the you know the the star of industry focus cuz everyone you know in 20, 2020 2019 it was all the tech stocks going crazy. <laughs> um, now it's us. It's our turn. That's right. Uh, but bank uh, Wells Fargo their quarter looked pretty good. Um, revenue and earnings both beat expectations. They released 1.6 billion in reserves. Um, so revenue grew 10% year over year, which given their asset cap is pretty impressive. Um, uh, net interest margin is better than most of their peers. Uh, it still did not live up to expectations, but I mentioned Bank of America's was 1.61. Um, Wells Fargo's is a little over 2%, so their profit margin looks pretty good. Um, they said the loan demand is not doing too great. And with the loan portfolio down 12% year over year, it's easy to see why they would say that. But the, the, just the, the fundamentals of the business are looking so much better than they were even a couple years ago. Uh, return on equities, uh, almost 14% in this quarter, which remember, double digits is good. Last year, it was negative 10.2%. Yeah. Um, the, efficiency the efficiency ratio. I was going to say, the, yeah. the efficiency ratio seems like it's coming back around. Yeah, they were expecting about 76%, which to put it in context, uh, uh, JP Morgan's is 56%, which is, yeah. which is well, a good I think number. Wells was 80% just a year ago. Yeah, now they're 70. at 66%. So they're, <laughs> yeah. And lower is better with efficiency ratio. So we want yeah. it in the 50s. Uh, but it's getting there. It's getting toward where it needs to be. Um, yeah, much, it's becoming profitable. They recently doubled the dividend. Um which they remember they had to cut the dividend at the start of the pandemic. So it's not quite back to where it was, but it, all things are looking good. We want the, we need the feds asset cap to be, to be released. I don't know what the feds waiting on for that. Um, it seems like they're made, Wells Fargo's made all the right moves. If you ask me. Yeah, it does. I mean, it does feel like they're developing this track record of just consistency. Right. And that I think, to me, and I know we've talked about this before, but I just want to reiterate. And I mean, I, you know, you you can you can offer up your two cents here, but it just feels like it was so key for them to bring in an outsider in Charlie Scharf as a new CEO. I mean, they made a mistake the first time around keeping an insider uh, when when all of those culture issues were really coming coming to the, to the surface. But I, I just to me, it really does show the value in bringing in that that outside set of eyes that can take a bit more of an objective look and not feel so tied to to just legacy constructs of, of how that business was 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 running itself from before. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I think they're making all the right moves. Like I said, um, I, I they could have handled the, remember we talked last week about them cutting the personal lines of credit. They yeah. could have done a better job at handling that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a little um, bit of a fail. <laughs> and, and that didn't. I'm sure that didn't make regulators happy. No, <laughs> uh, but it, it looks like they're they're doing pretty good about you know imp- they've improved their culture. They, like you said, they brought in some outsiders. So I I would have thought it would have happened by now. Um, I, well, I maybe we'll that's see. a you know maybe that's a headline here in the back half of the year that just keeps this thing going in the right direction. So I don't know. Maybe. Go back to the beginning of the year. I mean, I think this was just a great call by you, and I love seeing it work out. So let's uh, let's let's hope it keeps. Uh, let's hope that that ball keeps rolling. It seems like 
they are setting themselves up for success here. So that's a good thing. Uh, in regard to investment banking, because we've we've seen investment banking, I think, has really had an interesting uh, period of time here, particularly with all of these IPOs, this SPAC. I mean, there's just been a lot of business to underwrite lately. Uh, how did that impact Goldman Sachs? Because that really is, I mean, that's that's the investment bank. That's that's where this bank really should be shining um, in, in, in this investment banking environment. Yeah. So, I mean, their investment banking revenue was the second highest it's ever been. The first quarter was the highest. Um, so, they almost beat their own record. Uh, the, the IPO market certainly helped. Goldman's a you know big, big IPO underwriter. Um, there have been $135 billion worth of IPO um, issuance so far this year. The average for a full year over the past five years is $53 billion. So we're well above what you would see in a typical full year in the IPO market. And that's not SPACs. That's, you know, traditional IPOs. Um, so Goldman, that, that really helped. Trading revenue was down, but exceeded expectations. You know, you're not going to, in a non-volatile environment, you're not going to stay that, cr- that high forever. Uh, earnings really smashed through expectations. Uh like I said, I don't know why they even put expectations for Goldman's earnings because they seem to beat them every quarter. <laughs> uh, they just increased their dividend by 60% in regard- after the stress tests were released. Um, their business is looking great. They're maintaining their number one market share in most of their key categories. Um, revenue came in over $3 billion above expectations. Um, you know, they had- We'll see how the IPO market continues for the rest of the year, but if I, all these IPO alerts I'm getting from my TD Ameritrade account, I, there's a new one. I, I've gotten three today. Wow. Uh, so it doesn't look like it's slowing down anytime soon. No, no. It's a good environment to get out there and raise some money. Um, do you get any feel for how uh, Goldman is doing with its Marcus offering? I mean, how is Marcus in general? I mean, I know you've interviewed some uh, some folks from the team there uh, in, in regard to Marcus Clearly, they're making big investments. How's how's Marcus performing? Well, um, Marcus is is the the personal loan and savings platform. For those who don't know, I mean, you're seeing they're one of the few that their deposits are up year every year, which is kind of nice. Or that's I'm nice. not the deposits; their loan balances are up year every year. Oh, that's good. Um, but a lot is because they are they have some high value loan products. Remember, they're they're Apple's credit card partner. They recently took over GM's credit card business. And I don't know if you saw the the recent news. They're um they're developing a buy now pay later l- lending service for I did Apple. See that. Yeah, I did specifically see that. for Apple. Um, so you right now you know with your Apple card you could finance your your MacBook over twenty four months interest free things like that. So now they're developing something that'll let you do that for any purchase. Um, in conjunction with Apple, we saw a firm stock get hammered after that. They're the leading buy now pay later. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Goldman's really going all in on consumer banking, and it's still a really small percentage of the total. I don't have the number right in front of me, but it's it's less than ten percent of their business. Um, but it, I don't see I could see that becoming much much bigger in the coming years. Well, Matt, another story that we've been following here over the last several weeks, and one you've you've really dug into a good bit and explained very well, I might add, because it is a complicated story uh, by virtually every angle. But this is a Bill Ackman, right? Pershing Square Tontine. Uh, we've been talking about this um, this this 
move to acquire 10% of Universal Music through this SPAC offering from Pershing Square. And then we now see that actually this this deal isn't going to happen. It looks like Pershing Square, Tontine is dropping this deal to buy 10% of Universal Music. I'm wondering if you could explain the nuts and bolts of what's going on. Well, I wish they would have looked into whether the SEC would have approved this before they decided to. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of disappointed in that, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the whole point of a SPAC is to acquire a full business. You know, to have a business combination. You can make the argument that acquiring a 10% stake of a music company is not a, it's not a business combination. So, which is really SEC's, I mean, I'm, I'm reading the, I have the, the press release in front of me. The SEC's problem in particular was whether the structure of this qualified under the rules, under the quality, the structure of their intended business combination, whether it qualified. Now I kind of kicking myself for spending hours looking through the structure of the deal and trying to understand this thing now that it can't go through. But so what happens now is kind of the question. Well, yeah, what does happen now? So now they still have $4 billion of cash sitting there. Uh, Pershing Square itself, the hedge fund, not the SPAC, is going to go ahead with the 10% universal stake. So Pershing Square is still buying that. Um, yeah, it doesn't help the SPAC investors at all. But so now they have $4 billion. They're going to pursue a traditional SPAC business combination where they actually buy a business. Uh, Bill Ackman was on CNBC this morning um, because one of the biggest obstacles is also one of the biggest competitive advantages is that this is the biggest SPAC ever. So investing that $4 billion only makes sense with a handful of companies. Remember we did our, our fun episode where we named like 20 companies they could buy. Sure. Um, I think it was like Chick-fil-A was one of them. Subway was one, you know, things like that. (laughs) But so that's also a big limiting factor. But he said that's not necessarily a limitation. They could acquire a smaller company and pay a dividend to shareholders with whatever's left if they wanted to do it that way. Um, But now they they still have 18 months left on the clock um, to find a, a to execute a business combination. And he said he made the point on CNBC this morning that they're not starting from zero. Before they settled on the universal deal, they had discussions with a lot of other companies, so they could just as easily pick those discussions back up if they want to. Like they're not. They're, he said they're they're getting into this with a running start, so not terribly worried about it. Um, I'm holding on to my shares because they're pretty much not trading at much of a premium to the. It's they have twenty dollars per share in cash sitting in an account. And I think it was trading for $20.50 last I looked. So there's really, there's, you know, it's approaching a floor. Um, that $20 kind of creates a price floor because that's cash sitting in an account. Um, so I'm holding on to mine. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm kind of, I'm disappointed. I'm not going to say I'm not. Um, I thought this was a done deal that was having, would have a really good long-term structure, which I still think it would have been. Uh, but obviously the SEC did not said this is, this is not what SPACs are for. You're kind of you're pushing it, Bill Ackman. Um, <laughs> it's kind of what they're saying there. You're you're pushing the limits a little too far. Well, well, you know, hey, listen, you got to play by the rules, and I guess uh, it makes sense to not throw good money after bad if it's something they feel like they can't pull off. But um, but we shall see. We shall see. Uh, Matt, before we take off, uh, let's let's give our listeners a couple of stocks to keep an eye on this week. What is your stock to watch this week? Well, I am watching some of these home builder stocks. A few have just gotten beat up lately. Uh, Dreamfinders Homes is one in particular I'm watching. It's one of the latest additions to my own portfolio. Ticker symbol is DFH. 
Um, in the first quarter, their homes delivered went up 95% year over year because, you know, the real estate market's going crazy. Um, their new order book was up 137% year over year. They had a backlog of over 3,600 homes at the end of the first quarter. This is a company that's built a, a total of about 10,000 homes in its history. That's a big <laughs> backlog. Yes. Um, so I want to see how this uh, – they, they focus on the Sunbelt markets. They're based in Jacksonville, presence in the Carolinas. Uh, they actually have a presence in D.C., which is about as far north as they'll go. So you might see some DreamFinders homes, uh, Simes, around around where you are. Um, but a company I'm watching, especially over the next few years, they're growing really rapidly. So I want to see if that keeps up this quarter and be end for the rest of 2020. But the stock's really pulled back tremendously lately. So I'm, it's back on the top of my watch list, and I might even add to my new position. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, I'm going to be keeping an eye on not really a financials company, so to speak, but we, we listen to stocks to watch. We open up the universe here for our listeners. Um, and given that it's earnings season, I'm actually going to be keeping an eye on Chipotle. Uh, earnings for Chipotle come out Tuesday after the market closes. Uh, I mean, you look at the five-year chart for this business, particularly given where they were not all that long ago and to the you know the the health the health uh, food safety crisis there that they that they went through the five year chart for this company stocks up two hundred and seventy five percent so I mean that has been one heck of a comeback uh, year to date shares are up a little bit they're underperforming uh, but it was one of the stars I think of twenty twenty from an operational perspective so this is going to be a quarter that comps over one where things were getting pretty dicey just a year ago and I think it'll be interesting to see how that how that comp works out for them. Um, last year, they stood at around 15 million loyalty customers, um, and their digital sales uh, in that quarter a year ago, they grew 216% from the previous year. Uh, highest highest ever quarterly level at that point in time, represented 61% of uh, overall sales. So I think it's just going to be interesting to see how this business reports and compares to a year ago, particularly when you consider that it really is one of the restaurants that helped spearhead so much change um, over the course of 2020 when that change really was just an absolute necessity. Uh, stock I still own a few shares of, believe it or not, Matt, and feeling pretty good about hanging on to those shares because uh, this has been a long-term big fat winner. You own any shares of Chipotle? No, but you know who was a loser in that one? McDonald's. Remember, Chipotle oh, used to be a, a yeah. subsidiary of McDonald's, and they sold it for something That's like right. $10 million. I do remember that. I remember that well. <laughs> And yeah, you gotta <laughs> you gotta feel like McDonald's is kicking themselves. They, so they next time you see you go, next time you go through the McDonald's drive-through, I don't know if you do that or not, but thank them for getting rid of Chipotle <laughs> and, and making you some money in the process. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Well, Matt, I, I think that's gonna do it for us this week. As always, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Of course, always fun to be here. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus, or you can drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 